The insight. insight. The insightum. Podcast. Genetics. Human. Archaeology. Denisovans. Neanderthals. Metabolism. Ancestry. Where in the world did we come from? I am. Unique DNA. Genome. From Austin, Texas. Texas. Hey, everybody. This is Razid Khan with The Insight. And, you know, it's been um, two years since I talked to this, uh, to, to the current guest, um, Dr. Chris Stringer. Um, we are going to be talking about paleoanthropology. Uh, Chris, can you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, okay. I'm a, a researcher in human evolution at the Natural History Museum in London, uh, currently under lockdown, of course. So I'm uh, I'm in the Kent countryside speaking to you from there, which is not a bad place to be. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I watch Netflix, um, you know, specials or, or series about the English countryside, and it seems very quaint and charming. I'm sure, I'm sure TV isn't reality, but, you know, uh, it reflects something there. So, um, you know, we're here to kind of catch up. Um, I proposed this because we had our last conversation a little over two years ago. And, um, you know, there are some fields say like particle physics today, <laughs> two years is probably, you know, maybe nothing's happened, right? Um, that is not what paleoanthropology is like. That is not what human origins research, human evolution is like. Lots of things have changed. Um, so I kind of want to ask you about the Denisovans. And um, for the listeners who, uh, you know, shockingly do not listen to all the previous podcasts because we have talked about Denise Evans multiple times. I want to set the stage of what I feel we have learned and where we are since we last talked, Chris. Um, We have found out over the last couple of years that there were multiple Denise Evans populations, some of them quite differentiated from each other. So, you know, 300,000 years, possibly 400, 500,000 years diverged. Um, differentiation quite early after the separation from the Neanderthals, who are closer to Denisovans than they are to um, our modern human lineage, our African human lineage. And um, it looks like there's Denisovan mixture in people in Northeast Asia that is quite distinct from the Denisovan mixture uh, of people in Southeast Asia and, you know, the famous one in Papua, where there are 5% Denisovan, and also into Southern Asia. And, um, you know, we have samples from the Altai region, from the Denisovan cave, and those individuals are much closer to the contributory source to these Northeast Asians. And there's been recent work that suggests that, well, maybe the Papuans had two, two mixtures of Denisovans, and that there was a third Denisovan population somewhere, maybe in Wallachia, I don't know. And I've also looked at research which suggests that the Aita people um, you know, the, the Negrito people of the Philippines, they have Denisovan admixture that's quite distinct from the ones in, in the Papuans. So, you know, it's gotten curiouser and curiouser here um, from a geneticist perspective with all these different populations, with all these different admixtures. And um, I feel like, you know, you're, 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 um, you're a lot. I guess, you know, to use a Britishism, uh, the paleoanthropologist, I, I don't feel like you've prepared us for this. Um, I mean, what is going on? I mean, I know that there's a skull cap um, that I believe people have discovered, and there's some teeth, quite robust teeth, um, in various places in Inner Asia that might be Denisovan. But um, this, you know, highly um, 
seems like it must have been pretty numerous if there's multiple different lineages that are separated that far. Um, and they seem to have ranged from Siberia down into Southeast Asia. Uh, how is it that the paleoanthropologists have not been telling us of these Eastern humans um, for decades? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. Uh, of course, we have known for a while that there are populations in China, for example, like uh, Dali and Junushan. There are there are samples there which don't look Neanderthal, don't look Erectus, don't look Sapiens. So they are something else. And and now and again, I've referred to these uh, individual skulls as perhaps belonging to Homo heidelbergensis, uh, which is a, a middle Pleistocene species we know about from uh, Europe and Africa. But increasingly, you know, it's evident that they are distinct from Heidelbergensis as well. So, yeah, so the fossils tell us there are, there are, there's at least one extra kind of human in China, but uh, people can't agree on, on what it is. Of course, these might be Denisovans, but until we have their DNA, we can't compare them with the DNA recovered from Denisova cave itself. Of course, there is now a jawbone. Um, from Xiaohe uh, in Tibetan Plateau of China. And that jawbone uh, is very robust. It's over 160,000 years old. And it's got very large teeth with uh, complex crowns and roots. And therefore, it does look like uh, some of the Denisovan teeth. And there now is a, a very small bit of uh, proteomic data that suggests it too uh, could be a Denisovan or Denisovan related. So we start to build up a picture of a, of, a, of a network maybe of relationships that we've got the core material from Denisova cave. So a few teeth, as you say, quite large and robust, bits of skull. Um, we've got evidence of hybridization between the Denisovans and the Neanderthals in the region. And maybe we'll talk about that later. We've got the introgression signs, uh, particularly down in Australasia um, and, and scattered across Asia. And, and also we've got now the Xiaohe jawbone. And that jawbone also resembles a jawbone that has previously been found off Taiwan called uh, Pengu. And that mandible does have resemblances to the Xiaohe mandible. So that might also be a Denisovan. Then, as you mentioned, there are bits and pieces, there are some large teeth in China, they might also be Denisovan. So there's there's actually quite a bit of material out there which we know is distinctive, difficult to classify. And of course, as you've indicated, the DNA suggests that the Denisovans themselves were a diverse group with quite deep roots, maybe going back 400,000 years or more. So down in Southeast Asia, of course, there could be examples there. And, and I expect we're going to come on to discuss some of the fossil evidence from there, such as Flores, uh, a bit later. Yeah, yeah we, there's so much to discuss. Um, so actually, um, I do want to back up a little because, you know, I have a hard time keeping track of some of this. Heidelbergensis, um, what, what is this, you know, lineage? Like, what is this species or what is this, like, hominin? Like, tell, tell us about Heidelbergensis and why it's important. 
there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, different people have different uh, concepts of Heidelbergensis. So, uh, I mean, my concept is that there was a, a widespread species in the middle Pleistocene. Of course, the type specimen is a, is a jawbone from Germany found in 1907. And I've applied that name more widely to fossils like Broken Hill in Africa, Bodo in Africa, Petrolona and Arago in Europe. So the concept is there's a widespread species um, around five, 600,000 years ago. We now think it goes down to about 300,000 years ago based on the date for Broken Hill. Um, could be even a wider time range than that. So my concept from you know, 30 years ago or more, was that Heidelbergensis represented a reasonable last common ancestor for the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, and then potentially also then the Denisovans. But uh, in the last few years, I'm rethinking that because um, there are signs in Heidelbergensis, and particularly in the face, that it doesn't represent a particularly good ancestor for Homo sapiens because it looks like our rather flat, um, non-projecting face could be the primitive morphology for us Neanderthals and Denisovans. So we retain that morphology back to a middle Pleistocene ancestor, similar maybe to Homo antecessor, which we know about from Spain. So that flat, rather delicate face, delicate cheekbones was around seven or 800,000 years ago. The Homo sapiens lineage kept it, Heidelbergensis and the Neanderthals diverged away from it. So that might suggest these big Heidelbergensis skulls are not the common ancestor. They're actually diverging away from the common ancestor. They're certainly primitive. Um, for a while, they, they were pushed into Heidelbergensis. Some people still call them Heidelbergensis. Other people call them archaic Homo sapiens. But they are distinctive. I don't think they're Heidelbergensis. I think they, they do tell us that different people in China um, whether they're Denisovans, as I say, that that's another issue because um, you know they even these specimens themselves show variation. Some of them show some even Neanderthal-like features. Others look much more primitive. So even within that group, there could be diversity which we don't yet understand. So um, you know, Heidelbergensis. That's that's a relatively unfamiliar name um, to a lot of the public. You know, even though it's important. Um, what about this? Um, term homo erectus i mean do paleoanthropologists even use this uh word anymore or this this term anymore to refer to any hominins be partly because i'm, I'm asking because we are going to be focused in this discussion on east asia and uh southeast asia java and homo erectus looms large here and you know there could be some deeper lineages more ancient lineages that are more basal um that are mixed into the deeds of it so i mean what is the story with erectus is it a useful term yeah. Yeah, so so most uh, most researchers still use erectus, and they use the term very widely. Um, so for many people, this was a species. I mean, it was first named from material from Java in Indonesia, but I think for most people, it's a species that was present in Indonesia. It was present in China in the Middle Pleistocene and, and earlier Pleistocene. Um, whether it's present in Europe, we're not sure. Uh, it could have been there. It's present in Africa. Um, for a long period of time, and it's also present uh, at Dominici in the Caucasus in Georgia, uh, dating back about 1.8 million years. The African, early African examples date from at least that time, maybe even close to 2 million years ago. 
So it's a species with great longevity. We can date it to nearly 2 million years old in uh, Asia, in Western Asia and in Africa. Um, and in China, it goes down probably to four or 500,000 years ago. In Java, with the Nangdong material, also known as the Solo material, uh, that material could even be as young as 100,000 years old. So it's a very long-lived species in the general view. Um, I'm cautious about whether it really is just one species. Some people separate off a, a primitive part of Erectus, and they call it Homo agaster. There are people who think the Dominici specimens are a distinct species and call them Homo georgicus. Um, personally, even looking at the Far East, I look at the differences between the Javanese Erectus and the Chinese ones, and I think they have differences that suggest that they may be actually two distinct species. But, you know, the general view is that there's one long-lived and quite variable species called Homo erectus, and it is present in China, it is present in Indonesia. Hmm. Well, you know, you know, you're talking about, you know, there's Java man, there's Peking man, there's a, there is a history of paleoanthropology, of paleontology and, and human origins research in East Asia. Um, but um, I guess like one of the, one of the questions I want to ask you is, is one of the reasons we don't know, um, like who the Denisovans were besides these teeth and the pinky, a, a, a few things because of, um, political instability, lack of research and universities in this part of the world for much of the 20th century, uh, because there's just a huge contrast with, say, the Neanderthals, who, you know, are they're interesting enough, but they definitely um, have absorbed a lot of attention. But, um, you know, their locus of uh, range and habitation was more in Europe, where you know, a lot of universities, right, that are focused on these questions. I mean, what, what's your what's your explanation for this difference in um, our current understanding and what we know? Yeah, so it's a it's a complex question. So, of course, there there are universities in in China, long lived universities that have been studying the fossil material. So, the Peking Man material, of course, was was studied by Chinese workers uh, back in the nineteen thirties. And so there's a long tradition of Chinese workers, but of course, much of their work has been published in the Chinese language in journals which aren't uh, accessible to Western researchers. So to an extent, we are in ignorance of some of the work that has been done in, in China. Um, so there has been work going on, but it's true to say that in recent years, um, yes, I, I think things have been opening up and we start to get much greater collaboration between uh, Chinese scientists and scientists outside of China, and that's that's a good thing. So I think there is a there is a long tradition of work in China, but you know we are we are to a certain extent in ignorance of it, and to some extent it developed its own traditions. So there is a there has been a strong tradition of regional continuity thinking in China, which argues that modern humans <clears throat> evolved in China from from Peking man. So uh, I remember many years ago, in the early days of the out of Africa theory, the idea that modern humans originated in, in Africa, I gave a seminar at uh, you know, the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology in Beijing. And I gave a seminar about uh, modern humans originating in Africa. And there was quite a, a silence at the end of my talk. Um, 
And then one student said, well, you know, uh, that was a really interesting talk, but we know we were descended from Peking Man. So it was almost like an act of faith. So I think there's been that element in some Chinese thinking. Uh, I think it's opened up now and, and there's a much greater diversity of opinion. But the tradition of regional continuity is, is still strong in China. Uh, and that influences some of the debate in, on these questions. So, I mean, do you think it's possible that there's actually knowledge and information there that just hasn't been tapped by the West, partly just because of lack of communication, lack of cultural interaction um, between these traditions? Yeah, I, I think so. And this applies to the archaeology as well. Uh, there's a, a long, rich tradition of archaeological studies in China. And um, I, I think, you know, it's partly ignorance of that because of language difficulties and access difficulties. And some of the Chinese material is is only coming to light now. It's been around for a long time. So there are specimens which have been known for a long time to Chinese workers, but not known in the West. And of course, even within China, discoveries sometimes sit around for a while before they see the light of day. So for example, the Zhai jawbone that we mentioned, which seems to be Denisovan from its proteome, um, that was found about 40 years ago. And uh, the Harbin skull uh, was allegedly uh, kept down a well uh, in someone's garden for, for about 80 years uh, before it saw the light of day and received scientific recognition. So I think even now, you know, we're only, we're only picking up on some of these Chinese discoveries. And, you know, a place like China, uh, of course, um, has very diverse geology, so not every part of it uh, of the continent of Asia is going to be good for finding fossils. So, you, as you know, of course, for, for fossils, you need sedimentary deposits. You need um, lakes or rivers or rift valleys, of course, are excellent because uh, Rift Valley in East Africa opens up this huge area of sedimentary basins which preserve fossils. So that's, that's really good if you've got that sort of thing going on. Limestone caves, of course, are fantastic for preserving bones. So in some parts of China, there are cave systems uh, and there are, of course, rivers and lakes which will produce fossil material. Other parts of China are probably just geologically not good for the preservation of fossil material. So I think it's a matter of, of people searching in the right places. And, of course, in recent years, People are using satellite imagery now uh, in Africa. That's been important to locate sites. So I think this sort of methodology will will be important in opening up uh, new discoveries in China because there is undoubtedly a rich record to be recovered from China. And because the DNA record uh, is only beginning to be tapped as well. And until we get ancient DNA from some of these perhaps Denisovan fossils, we really can't start to make sense of the story. Maybe proteomes is actually going to be a more productive way forward for some of that Chinese material to start to try and link it with uh, the Denisovans to start to build up a proteomic signal for what Homo erectus is like. Um, so I think that's, mm -hmm. that's all work to come. But I think in the next few years, we are going to see some breakthroughs in these areas. Yeah, and actually... Um... So in terms of the proteome uh, listeners, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the listeners will have listened to my conversation with uh, 
with Frito Welker. Um, he worked on some the proteome on the Denise events earlier last year. And I think um, he came out recently with something on ergaster, homo ergaster in Europe, I believe, and um, you know, trying to resolve the phylogeny there. And just, just for the listener, uh, you know, the proteome, um, just to refresh you, the proteome does not have as much variation uh, as DNA. There's a lot less you can do with it, but um, proteins are very robust. They're very hardy and sturdy. Um, I mean, DNA is actually a pretty sturdy macromolecule itself, but uh, proteins are, um, you know, quite often even more extreme. And so, um, you know, they're more robust, more fit in these inclement conditions. And so you can get genetic signal or get phylogenetic signal out of them. It's just a lot less. So there's trade-offs there. Um, I'm curious about like, so, you know, you know, talked about China a fair amount, then there's Southeast Asia and, you know, a previous podcast, um, Spencer and I talked about uh, Sundaland, which was, you know, seems like prime hominin habitat during the Pleistocene. So we have these Denisovans at minimum two deep lineages, probably. Um, you named some other fossil sites, which might or might not be Denisovan, you know, Dali, like all these other sites. But, um, you know, in Southeast Asia, we have Flores, okay? Um, my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is most people actually think, yes, that was a independent lineage of hominins that were endemic to Flores. Uh, there's been some work out of the Philippines. Now, there's no remains, but there's some good evidence possibly for tools at the Philippines. So it was way too ancient to be modern humans, um, that site, from what I recall. So that could be another hominin. Um, and, um, you know, who knows what else is out there? Like you already talked about uh, erectus, some sort of erectus hanging around until 100,000 years ago. Um, it's starting to be hard, to, I think, for people to, to keep track of all this. Um, I know, I think, um, Chris, like your work has a lot of it has been in Europe, right? Uh, well, yeah, Europe, Africa, you know, and, and yeah. Southeast Asia too. So, um, okay. yeah, I'm, I'm actually been involved in some work in, in, in Java on dating the Java hominids as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I mean, I've been an observer of the situation in Flores, a very interested observer from the very beginning. Um, it, it was really a, a, a surprising, in some ways even shocking find to have something completely distinct on this remote island of Flores and we're still coming to terms with what that lineage is. But, of course, you mentioned the Philippines there. We have actually got uh, archaic remains from uh, Luzon, Homo luzonensis. Okay, so, so there we is did a, have remains. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so there are remains. Um, they seem to be in some ways comparable with the Flores material, so it's a small-bodied uh, human form. Um, it's been called a distinct species, Homo luzonensis, but the material is quite scrappy compared with Flores. Um, but it, it's quite possible that in those islands, and there are many of them uh, across the Wallace line, that there, there were many island experiments in human evolution that uh, early human populations got isolated on these islands and went in their own different directions. So we could see one of these experiments with Homo luzonensis, another one with Homo floresiensis, and there may well be others to come from some of those other islands. So this is a really interesting area. And some people have speculated, well, maybe maybe this Denisum variation, the Denisum variation maybe is reflected in these populations. But I, I take a different view because I think that the Erectus lineage in Java is very deep-seated in time. It goes back 
well beyond a million years and comes down, we think, to maybe 100,000 years. On Flores, there's evidence from archaeology and from fossils that the lineage there goes back more than a million years. For Lusinensis, we can't put a time depth on it, but uh, it, it looks like it's a very primitive form. So my view is that none of these are likely to be Denisovans. I think they represent distinct deep lineages in their own regions. And that leaves us an empty area in the middle of um, you know, that region, places like Sulawesi, for example, um, maybe parts of the Philippines, um, Borneo, Sumatra. These might be the places where the Denisovans had their homeland and they spread and diversified. And what we've got in Siberia is really the very top end, the most northern extent of the Denisovan range at that time. But the heartland, where they had the largest populations maybe and the largest diversity developing and maintaining, might have been down in the warmer regions of, of Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, I mean, Spencer and I have, have talked about that. Um, that's our assumption too. Um, so you worked in Europe and you work in Southeast Asia. I mean, here's a question for you. Um, it seems like hominins were more speciose in Southeast Asia than they were in Europe or Central Eurasia. Um, are we missing something? Are we misclassifying something in Europe? Or was it just basically Neanderthals, Neanderthals, Neanderthals? Um, whereas in East Asia, Southeast Asia, we just talked about Flor you know, the Flores hobbits, we talked about the Philippine, the, the Luzon the hominid individuals, at least two types of Denisovans, and you know, perhaps Erectus as late as 100,000 years ago. So this, these are a lot of human species. Like, why are there a lot of human species in East Asia and not all across Europe? Like, is there a biogeographic reason for that? Yeah, I think biogeographic factors are very important. We know that islands are uh, engines of speciation and diversification. And I think the islands of Southeast Asia, and, and obviously at the moment, Java uh, is, is an island at times because it was connected with Southeast Asia at low sea level. But those islands like Flores and parts of the Philippines were, uh, were never connected to, um, even at low sea level, were never connected to the main part of, of Southeast Asia. So those islands are places where you can get this diversity developing, and that's what seems to have happened with Flores and Luzon, um, and also probably the Javanese erectuses. Um, in places like Europe, of course, it seems that uh, the Neanderthal lineage goes very deep. It goes back probably at least to 500,000 years ago, and it's quite likely there is greater diversity there than we know at the moment because we've got Homo antecessor is there at 850,000 years. We don't know how late Homo antecessor comes on in time. It may well have extended in time, deep, you know, into the well into the Middle Pleistocene. We don't know that at the moment. We've got Heidelbergensis there in the early Middle Pleistocene, and evidence that it may have extended in Europe uh, to overlap with the beginning of the Neanderthal lineage. So we've got diversity there potentially between late Heidelbergensis and early Neanderthals. And there's evidence, of course, that even Homo sapiens may have made some early forays into Europe. Uh, there's this uh, fragmentary fossil from Epidema in Greece, dated over 200,000 years ago, just the back part of a skull, but it does look sapiens-like. So I think, you know, Europe does have more diversity than, than is often imagined, but yes, it, it may not have had as much as... Uh, 
as places like China. But I think even in China, we still don't really understand the the level of diversity. Um, it's possible that in there you've got something like Neanderthals. There's the Marpa skull from uh, China, which in some ways looks quite uh, like an early Neanderthal. So it may be that Neanderthals even penetrated into China and were contributing to the diversity there. We know they hybridized with Denisovans. Maybe there was even hybridization between Neanderthals and some of the, um, mm. the, the Aboriginal groups, if you want to call them that, that, that were mm-hmm. evolving in China. Well, I mean, so you're alluding at minimum, because there's more there than this, but Denny, um, the female who I think had a Denisovan mother and a Neanderthal father, although the Neanderthal had some Denisovan distant ancestry as well. But in any case, yeah. you know, but she was basically an F1. Um, and so the, the issue with Denny is like, okay, how are you, what is the probability that we would get a sequence or a genotypes off an F1 of these two diverged lineages? So that was pretty amazing. Um, yeah. Now there's been, there's been more recent work that the Altai Neanderthals in particular had Denisovan admixture into them, but um, the later Neanderthals, uh, the ones that mixed with modern humans, for example, don't seem to be descended from the Altai Neanderthals, and therefore, okay, that's why the Denisovan ancestry didn't spread to Europe. Um, there's a small, you know, the Kari Stefansson in Iceland did some work and with Decode, and their group is suggesting there is a little bit of Denisovan in some a lot of Europeans. But, you know, that's a separate issue. Um, so, you know, you talked about the biogeography. Bio- it looks like there was, you know, an area of contact between Denisovans uh, the northern Denisovans and the most easternmost Neanderthals, and yet the genes didn't flow all the way across, right? And so uh, that's right. Yeah, you know that's an, and, an interesting and, point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, so the yeah, we know Neanderthals and Denisovans are related at a very at a fairly basal level. Um, so that split may go back more than four hundred thousand years. I, I think that. When we look at um, the Cimera Huesos material, so this is material from the Pit of the Bones in Atapuerca. So this material has got some genomic data from it, which suggests it's early Neanderthal. It has a date of about 430,000 years. And those teeth are quite Neanderthal-like. Now, there's no sign of those features in the uh, Denisovan teeth from Denisovan Cave. So... That makes me guess that the Denisovan lineage diversified away from the Neanderthals before the time of the Sima people and Atapuerca. So that would be more than 430,000 years. So I think they could be quite a deep split, but obviously not one that uh, that prevented hybridization. And of course, that's true for sapiens as well. So, you know, if we split from Neanderthals 600,000 years ago, obviously hybridization was still possible 50,000 years ago. Uh, because we have the signs of it in our genomes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that, that makes sense. And you know, so I, I guess one issue that is um, looking in the background is that you know we can have a situation where the Denisovans themselves have that mixture from these you know late erectus individuals or some other lineage, and that mixes into modern humans. So we have this tangle. Um, you know, the last time we talked, like you had been discussing the fact that. Um, you have modified your own views from out of Africa with, you know, maybe not total replacement, but predominantly replacement. Um, and now it's more of a, there's like assimilation of local lineages. 
how does how does East Asia make you feel about that hypothesis? Because it, the landscape is so complicated, um, and you know there's these different distinct fragments within all of these human populations. I mean, do you feel like you've continued to move in your um, perception that there was a lot of gene flow between different human lineages, or are you kind of where you think, you know, you're, you really are going to end up in terms of like your views on these questions and that, you know, there's not going to be any new finds that are going to change this general framework. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm loath to say there are no, there are no finds that are going to change frameworks because, uh, as I say, things like Flores turn up and, and completely, you know, they're completely unexpected. Um, you really couldn't have predicted something like Flores, at least I wouldn't have. So you never know what's around the corner. But at least on the existing data, yeah, I, I think we can say that, yes, there was uh, one major dispersal of modern humans across Asia and eventually reaching Australia. And that looks like a dispersal of around 50,000 years ago. Now, there are there are puzzles there, if that's true, because, of course, you've got suggestions that modern humans were in China more than 80,000 years ago from uh, from uh, teeth, for example, that look like modern human teeth. We've got a couple of teeth from uh, the Lida Ajer cave, um, which, uh, you know, look modern human at 75,000 years ago in Southeast Asia. We've got uh, archaeological evidence of humans being in Australia, in northern Australia, at Madjebebi, um, at 65,000 years ago. So there are, there are things that could still surprise us. We, we don't really know who those early modern humans could have been getting into Australia 65,000 years ago. In fact, some people think, who knows, maybe it's Denisovans there, but I, I doubt that very much. The, uh, the cultural material, you know, the, the level of symbolism in, those, in that site at 65,000, to me, signals you know, homo sapiens, but we can't be absolutely sure. Um, and, of course, there's great diversity in the fossil record in, in late Pleistocene Australia. We've got uh, material from Mungo, which looks, you know, very, very typical sapiens-like. And then you've got the much more robust material from sites like Cow Swamp, Kahuna. And that's, um, you know, definitely, I would say, you know, very robust compared with recent Australians and with Homo sapiens in general. And this is true for many parts of the world. I think diversity in Homo sapiens was much larger physically 15,000 years ago than it was in the last, say, 5,000 or 10,000 years. I think we've seen a pruning off of diversity in morphology in Homo sapiens in the last 10,000 years. And when we go back a bit further, whether we're in Australia with Cow Swamp or Mungo, whether we're in Nigeria with the Iwo Eleru skull, um, we can see that there are specimens which are, you know, really extending the range of Homo sapiens as we know it today. Now, whether that's true genetically as well, whether it's a reflection of hybridization from so-called archaic humans, that may well be part of the story. But I think there's still a lot we don't understand about late Homo sapiens and the story in Southeast Asia, I think is going to be more complicated than, than you know, I, I'm trying to keep a simple model of one major dispersal through the region about 50,000 years ago. But I think the reality is is probably going to be more complicated than that. Yeah. So, I mean, you brought the, 
the Nigerians, Nigerian uh, individual um, remains. Um, one of the things that has been occurring over the last couple of years is this uh, emergent idea that there is no privileged area of Africa from which modern humans come from. And, you know, um, Chris, you know, you've been like in the public eye, in the media, I mean, from, I mean, honestly, most of my conscious life, I'm going to have to say, I remember seeing you in the 1980s. I think, you know, in England, it's called Horizon, but it was Nova in the US. And so, you know, I saw you talking about out of Africa and all these things. Um, and back then, it was explained that, you know, we're descended from one tribe in East Africa. So, you know, there's the, there's the Aterian, I think, or not Aterian, but like earlier in the Jebel Hood, you know, in, in Northern Africa, then you're talking about these Nigerian remains. And there's telltale signs in the genome of quite diverged um, human lineage. Some of them are archaic, and some of them might be the deepest branches of modern humans. Um, you know, like say like 300,000 years ago, um, at minimum 200,000 years ago, which is, you know, the Khoisan are at least 200,000 years diverged, right? And so you have this complexity, and, you know, there's this term that people are banding about, um, African multiregionalism. And, um, you know, I think most listeners know that you have a history with multi-regionalism um, as, you know, you take the other side of that traditionally. Uh, what do you think about this idea of African multi-regionalism? Um, is it a useful framework to present for what happened in Africa? Yeah, well, I think I'm probably to blame for that term, actually. I think I used it in 2002 in a paper suggesting that uh, <clears throat> African roots might be more complex for Homo sapiens. But I think that, uh, yes, it, it has led to confusion and maybe we should be talking about pan-African evolution rather than African multi-regionalism, just to kind of uh, keep things a bit simpler and less confusing. But certainly, yeah, I think the African story is more complicated than we thought. And we can see from even the dating evidence. And, you know, I was recently involved with the paper on dating the Broken Hill Skull, to about 300,000 years ago in Zambia. So about 300,000 years ago, we seem to have an early Sapiens lineage up at Jebelihud in Morocco. We have the Broken Hill Skull at around 300,000 in Zambia. And then down in South Africa, we have Homo naledi, something even more primitive, apparently surviving uh, 300,000 years ago. So already three kinds of humans in Africa apparently coexisting. Who knows if there weren't more of them uh, than, than those three we know about. Homo naledi was a, a complete surprise to most of us. So who knows what else there is. Uh, we know humans lived over most of Africa 300,000 years ago, and yet we only have fossils from very selected parts. Probably less than 10% of Africa has produced fossil remains. So who was in Central Africa? Who was in West Africa for most of that time? We don't have the faintest idea at the moment. And I think there are still a lot of exciting discoveries to come from Africa. And I think our evolution will be, you know, rather a tangled web of evolving lineages through time. We emerge from that eventually in, in the form we can call modern Homo sapiens. But it probably wasn't a straight linear path. It was a bit of a tangled path. Yeah, I mean, you keep saying complex, 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 but I mean, I don't blame you because it is complex, you know, keeping track of all of these different fossils, these different remains, um, you know, 
it was there was that um I think it was a there was a the the, the modern human in Ethiopia two hundred thousand years ago. That was like a simple story, right? Like everything kind of fell together, and now this stuff out of Morocco, this stuff in Southern Africa, like it's it's all really confused. I mean, what would you say is still a simple story about human evolution? Okay, well, I think when we look at the Homo sapiens lineage, let's let's take our our lineage back to the time of the common ancestor with the Neanderthals and Denisovans. So geneticists estimate that common ancestral population may have lived maybe 600,000 years ago. So let's let's accept that for the moment, 600,000 years for the common ancestor. We don't actually know where that common ancestor lived. Many people have assumed it was Africa, but it, it might have been in a region like uh, Western Asia, for example. Um, but anyway, wherever that common ancestor lived, we then had the divergence of a Neanderthal and an early Sapiens lineage. Now, of course, that early Sapiens lineage was in Africa uh, subsequently for most of its history. It was in Africa, even if it started outside Africa, and we're not sure. That lineage in the early part would not, of course, have looked like recent Homo sapiens. It would have looked primitive. It would have looked more like the common ancestor. So we can expect that there will be fossils in Africa which don't have all the features we find in Homo sapiens today. And I've used the rather unsatisfactory term, archaic Homo sapiens, for those early parts of the sapiens lineage that don't have all the modern features. So, for example, the globular brain case that we have today, this rounded skull, high forehead, uh, high parietal bones and so on, that rounded skull shape is there in Homo kibish at around 200,000 years. It's there in Herto at around 160,000 years in Ethiopia. But it's not there in Jebel Ehud. So at 300,000 years or so in Morocco, we've got something that we think lies on the Homo sapiens lineage because of the, the face and, and because of some features in the in the jawbone and teeth, for example. Um, we think that's on the Homo sapiens lineage, but it's not a modern human in, in any meaningful sense. It, it's, it's an early sapiens, an archaic sapiens. And so that's why the story is going to be complicated, that we're at some point there is this coalescence of modern features of the, the globular brain case, of the, uh, the narrow pelvis, uh, the chin on the lower jaw. These features evolve, but they may not have evolved in a single population, which is what I might have said 20 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. They may have evolved, you know, as a composite from even from different parts of Africa, and then they kind of came together to assume this Homo sapiens form we have today. Mm -hmm. We know it was there 200,000 years ago. It wasn't there with Jebelihood at 300,000. Um, somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000, those features may have really started to develop more strongly. Uh, perhaps the situation is even more complex, and that Homo kibish morphology goes back even deeper in time and it's yet to be revealed in, in some part of Africa. And it's likely that the archaic morphology we find in Jebel Ehud also went on in time. As you've indicated, we could have these early sapiens lineages still hanging around in Africa later on in time. Uh, perhaps they're a source of this more primitive morphology we find in the Iwo Aleru skull in Nigeria. Maybe that mm. explains why that doesn't look like recent Africans, because it's got some aspects of that early sapiens morphology, or perhaps it's got gene flow from survivors of that early sapiens uh, lineage. 
Yeah, I mean, so the Iwa Aleru, that's like, isn't it like 10,000, 15,000 years old? It's pretty recent, right? Yeah, 13,000 13, was our best okay. estimate for the Yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, you know, you know, we alluded to biogeography. Uh, Africa has a lot of great apes. Uh, like, you know, it's prime habitat for apes, for hominins, whatever. So I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they lasted pretty late. And similarly, I wouldn't be surprised if they lasted pretty late in South and East Asia as well. Um, but are these places exceptional? Or um, one thing that I wonder about is if there were just like a lot of random twigs and branches of the human family tree all over the world that kind of got homogenized in the last 50,000 years. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's right. Well, either homogenized or those branches got pruned away. Um, of course, one of the remaining mysteries is why are we the only surviving human out of all those humans that were around, we're the only ones left. And is that because we're special or did we just get lucky? I mean, we really don't know the answer to that. And that's one of the outstanding questions that uh, that still keeps me awake at night. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, we were talking about Denise Evans earlier and I want to look back to that because, I mean, I think with Africa, the fossils, there's just issues with preservation. It's just going to be touch and go. You know, I mean, it, it's not shocking that a lot of the fossils have been found in dry um, locations in Africa, right? They're not in the rainforest. They're not, you know, anywhere um, super wet and sticky. But, uh, you know, in East Asia, you know, you do have in China, I think, opportunities for, like, you know, more cool environment, a drier environment. And um, are the collaborations already out there now? I, I know that, you know, field biologists, field anthropologists can be you know, a bit of an ornery lot, you know, and there's a lot of tension with China right now, uh, just kind of a cold war. You know, maybe between the United States and China, it happened really quick. You know, we are recording uh, during the COVID nineteen pandemic, so um, that 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 explains these comments. But um, uh, what's what is our hope with like the way the geopolitics is, the way the culture and the departments are? I mean, I feel like we have so many possible opportunities to resolve the mystery of the Denisovans, but there's sociological blocks in a way to it. I mean, does that make sense to you, Amir? Or do you think I'm being crazy here? Yeah, I mean, politics certainly does get in the way, and and of course, it, it you know it, it always has done to an extent. Uh, you know, we Brits don't have a great record with Piltdown Man, do we? So, uh, um, you know, the politics was was part of the uh, temporary success of Piltdown Man. Brits particularly wanted to believe in Piltdown Man as as evidence that uh, humans had indeed evolved in 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 Britain. But, uh, yeah, politics is part of the story. But I think things are, you know, really in a, in a better place now because think of the Xiaohei Mandible. That was an international collaboration of Chinese and non-Chinese scientists. Uh, the Dali skull is now uh, being open to study by uh, non-Chinese scientists. So I do think things are improving. Um, and, of course, there there is, you know, certainly with ancient DNA, there is continuing strong collaboration between China and and countries outside of China on the ancient DNA field and, and, and the proteomes as well. I think proteomes in particular are going to be a very important way forward where we don't have DNA preservation. The proteomes will at least help us start to categorize some of these uh, early humans and uh, wouldn't it be great if we can get proteomic evidence eventually from Homo floresiensis, from Erectus, uh, proper erectus and start to really build up uh, a library of proteomic data uh, to take us beyond the range 
of the genomic data. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you alluded earlier to um, modern humans that are a little. So, archaeology and the genetics seem to suggest that the expansion of modern humans, um, you know, the ancestors of everyone outside of Africa, occurred about fifty thousand years ago. But um, you know, looking at the Altai Neanderthals, Adam Siebel's group. Um, found that it had modern human ancestry. So that's like 140,000 years ago or something. Um, so there were modern humans out and about, you know, in Asia that long ago. So um, do you have an explanation for this sort of thing? Because, I mean, the genetic data is pretty persuasive, actually, if people have looked. So, you know, is it just that the 50,000-year expansion is the only one we can catch a genetic signal for? Or... Um, was it actually the only expansion of modern humans? Well, yeah. I mean, this this really is one of the the big questions because if the evidence from, let's say, um, you know, northern Australia, uh, Majabebe, if that evidence is correct that there were modern humans there, well, in, apparently well established at sixty five thousand years ago, um, and and they were going through Southeast Asia eighty thousand years ago, then the genetic data. Either the calibrations are wrong and there has to be earlier dispersals, uh, significant dispersals of Homo sapiens, or those early sapiens dispersals were ultimately unsuccessful in terms of continuing their occupation. Either those populations died out or they were swamped, if you like, by a much larger signal of the dispersal at 50,000 that then over overwrote any evidence uh, virtually of their existence. So... Um, we don't know yet what, what the answer to that one is, uh, but certainly, as you've alluded, there, there is evidence of earlier contact between sapiens and at least the Neanderthal lineage. Um, there's this replacement of apparently a more ancient mitochondrial lineage and of a more ancient Y chromosome lineage by younger, what seemed to be a, an early sapiens lineage. So this suggests that there was contact between sapiens and neanderthals before 200,000 years ago um, this partial skull from greece from epidema uh, at over 200,000 years might be a sign of that early sapiens exit and if it got as far as greece well maybe it could have gone east as well and uh, and there could have been early sapiens input but of course in the case of the denisovans it did not replace uh, their mitochondrial, their more ancient mitochondrial and Y lineages. So um, the sign of it in the Denisovans is much less marked than it is in the Neanderthals. So I think, yes, there will be early sapiens excursions. And, of course, who knows whether Neanderthals didn't extend into Africa at times. You know, they may have been in Arabia. Yeah. Perhaps even the Neanderthal lineage would have got in to Africa at times. Um, I mean, what's interesting with Jebel Ehud is I mentioned it's uh, – it's not got the globular cranial vault. And, uh, you know, in some ways, the vault shape of, uh, of Jebelihood is is a bit more Neanderthal-like um, than Sapiens-like. So the face is certainly Sapiens-like, but the cranial vault, in some ways, is is a bit like an early Neanderthal. That was something I, mm. you know, I found in my PhD back in 1974, that it was a sort of mixture. It clearly wasn't an, an African Neanderthal, as it had been called, but it was something somehow between a Neanderthal morphology and a, and a sapiens morphology. So I think even a fossil like Jebel Ehud still, you know, has 
you know, it's uncertain. Is it just an early sapiens or is there a bit more to the story there to come out? We we don't know yet. And again, having proteomes from some of these uh, fossils might help us sort out some of these questions. Well, so, I mean, you know, you're using the word sapiens, you know, homo sapiens, sapiens or homo sapiens. Um, we have had interactions of a carnal sort, it seems, uh, with Neanderthals and Denisovans and, you know, whatever basal, archaic um, hominins were in Africa that weren't our ancestors. Um, you know, I wonder how different are we? I mean, are are we the only ones that think? I mean, I, I think that there was the result that came out last year, a year and a half ago, after our podcast of Neanderthals and symbolic, um, you know, just symbolic expression. Obviously, we do a really intense, you know, copious job of it. But um, do you think that one of the consequences of the last 10 years, last 20 years has been shrink the gap between the quote unquote archaic hominins that we absorbed and modern humans? Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt that uh, whatever behavioral gap there was, and certainly I had a view 20 years ago that there was a, you know, a, a very significant behavioral gap between Neanderthals and modern humans. You know, I, I accepted the Neanderthals were fully human, but I did think that we were doing a number of things they weren't doing 40,000 years ago. That behavioral gap has narrowed very considerably in the last few years with new evidence. Um, some people think the gap has, has completely disappeared and, and they were our equals cognitively, symbolically. Um, I'm not, I don't go that far yet, but certainly the behavioural gap has, has closed. But of course, the more like us we make the Neanderthals, the more like us we make the Denisovans, then the greater the puzzle of why we're here and they've disappeared. So this is, yeah. you know, brings us back to that question. And again, did we just get lucky? Um, you know, one view is that, um, you know, we we basically benefited from the Neanderthals' low population numbers. That by the time we spread into their territories in in the last fifty thousand, forty thousand years, they were, you know, low in numbers, low in diversity they were only just about hanging on. They were already a species in trouble uh, and it didn't take much to tip them over the edge to extinction. So that's one possibility. Mm. Um, but then when you look at the Denisovans, it doesn't seem to work so well with them. They seem to have been more diverse. They were very widespread, seemingly very successful, uh, well-established, we guess, in Southeast Asia from the high diversity and high population numbers, we, we guess, from the genomic data. So how come they went under? you know, if, if they had been so long-lived and so successful. So I still don't, I don't think we understand really what it is about modern humans. Is it just that we were exploiting the environment more intensively? We were able to extract resources more intensively because of our social systems, because of our, our cultural behaviour? Uh, was there something different there? Was there something different cognitively, which we haven't got a handle on? I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think we know. And these are the areas for quite exciting areas for research in the next few years. Yeah. Well, say you knew something and, you know, you were one of the architects of what we knew about this uh, expansion without, you know, assimilation whatnot. And now it's just way more complicated. And I think, I think we're trying to equilibrate um, where we are. So you, you did talk Chris, about, you know, working with um, the team that was working on Javanese remains um, 
you're, you know, you've, you've put in some really good publications. You've been influential in your field. You're, you're also big on Twitter. Um, you know, before we leave, I, I want to ask you, like, why do you use Twitter? You know, what are its upsides and its downsides? And how do you think science communication will proceed in the future? Because, you know, 30 years ago, I would only have heard about Chris Stringer because he was on a documentary and they had to interview him as a talking head, right? That, that's not where we are today. You're sending out your tweets to hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of potentially curious people. Um, like what, what are your thoughts about this, this setup right now? Yeah, so yes, I, I you know, when I first heard about Twitter, I looked at it and thought, wow, you know, this is just going to waste a lot of my time. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into it, and I resisted it for a while. But now, yes, I'm, I'm very much uh, so part of it, and I find it a very useful source of information scientifically. I get my first alerts about papers often from Twitter, but of course, it can be a great time waster, and of course, there are the trolls and the negativity there. You know, you have to be selective in in what you're looking at on Twitter. Um, It's certainly got its pluses and minuses, but I find it a great source of information. Um, And, you know, I've I've certainly made contact with people through Twitter, uh, beneficial contacts, you know, with the media and even with science. Um, So it can be a very positive force, but it can be a negative force as well. And And I'm sure you find that too with your interactions there. (laughs) <laughs> Wait, you're talking about trolls. Is that is that a yeah? yeah there there are certain trolls out there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there yeah. are trolls. They are not Denisovans. They are not Neanderthals. Um, they are an unknown hominin of a malevolent means and inclination. You know, so yeah, um, yeah. But so, it, so, and the more traditional media. I mean, newspapers. Uh, you know, I, I'm happy to be interviewed by most newspapers. But of course, the you know, in dealing with with newspapers, with with the, you know the the journalists in the traditional sense, um, of course they've got their, their own agenda. They want a big story, and again, that can be positive or negative. There are some reporters who really do want to get you know the balance right and get the science right. There are others who are after a you know a, a punchy headline, and so you sometimes see a headline and you think, oh wow, God, dear, I didn't say that. Uh, because mm-hmm. if you read the article, you get the you get the balanced story. But the headline writers sometimes I'm told by the journalists, well, I don't write the headlines. I didn't write that headline. They 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 pass the buck. But um, you know sometimes the headlines aren't really a true reflection of the article itself. Unfortunately, it's the headlines that people often remember, and that's how you can get some of the the worst misunderstandings. Um, and I, you know, I, I try to be scrupulous in regarding the Neanderthals as fully human. You know, they're members yeah. of the genus Homo. So for me, they're human. And yet yeah. sometimes yeah. journalists I speak to, you know, put a quote out seemingly from me where I talk about Neanderthals and humans. And I don't mm-hmm. ever say that. I say Neanderthals and modern humans. So for me, Neanderthals are fully human. Um, so, yeah, sometimes your words get, let's say, simplified. Uh, details get left out, which is which is not good. But you you know through through the years you learn which journalists you know are good to deal with and maybe the ones you you might want to try and avoid who are oversimplifying the story or wanting to build up conflict where uh, you don't want to have conflicts with people. You want to keep the debate on scientific terms, but there are unfortunately are some journalists who just want to stir it up. You know, Stringer says this. 
someone else says the opposite, you know, and they kind of wind both sides up in the debate. And that certainly happened to me in the early years of out of Africa. That certainly did happen mm. where journalists really wanted to stir up the conflict to make they actually fueled the fire, you mm. know, at times. So it was it was dramatic. It was it was drama. It was dramatic tension. That's what they want. Um, I think the great thing about Twitter is you can just reach out to the public and just say what you really wanted to say. You don't have to worry about someone editing you out or editing you strangely. You know, they're usually not fabricating, but they're manipulating um, to heighten uh, just the conflict and the drama, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, but overall, yeah, I mean, my dealings with media overall have been positive through the years. Um, and also on the exhibition side, you know, I, I feel that uh, we, you know, we have a role in communicating our science to the public. Also, having been in a museum for, for pretty well my whole career, um, you know, it's been great to have a human evolution exhibition, which we produced five years ago. Uh, of course, things move fast. It's already it's already a bit out of date. But that exhibition yeah. too has been a great means of outreach. You know, I've done a number of interviews in there. I've shown lots of members of the public around it on personal tours. People really appreciate that. And it's great to get the evidence out there. And, and there are real fossils. You know, the, the Broken Hill fossil, the original, is actually on show in that exhibition. Uh, when when we'll be in the fortunate position of reopening the museum, at least people can see the original Broken Hill skull, the original Gibraltar Neanderthal skull. So that's mm -hmm. something we we wouldn't have done 20 years ago. Now the originals are actually on show there. Well, so, you know, you're saying 20 years, we're in 2020. Um, the, things are changing really fast. Um, things are changing really fast in genetics, but uh, there's been some sort of synergy with, I feel, with paleoanthropology where things are changing really fast in paleoanthropology. Um, as we go into the 2020s, um, what are you anticipating? What would you not be surprised to find out? I mean, what can we expect? Like, do we know all the hominins there are to know? What are your intuitions about this? Yeah, well, I think the lessons of the last few years projected forward suggest that we certainly don't know all the uh, all the hominins that are out there, not even the, in the last million years. There are going to be more surprises to come. I've indicated already the islands of Southeast Asia. I'm sure there are many more surprises to come from there. Um, I think we will see a breakthroughs in DNA and proteomic studies that will enable us to get a fix on you know, the Denisovans and how widely they ranged. And I think that uh, also we will start to get a better idea about, about what the, the genomic differences there are between modern humans and, and Neanderthals and Denisovans. What, what do they really signify? People are beginning to work on, on the brain and, and, and how it works. And perhaps there we will start to get some kind of I don't know, real investigation of whether there are quali qualitative differences between, you know, the modern human brain and the brains of Denisovans and, and Neanderthals. Was there something different um, or, or was it really that, that, you know, it was just circumstances and luck that, that got us through as the lone survivors and, and left those other humans uh, along the wayside? Uh, mm -hmm. Not, not of course, genetically. They're still with us, but but physically, those other humans, Luzonensis, Floresiensis, Erectus, probably may have still been around. Denisovans and Neanderthals—they've all gone in the last 
70,000 years and we're the last ones left. Um, sometimes I think that can't just be a coincidence. It has to be something to do with us. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think in the next 10 years, maybe we will get a better understanding of why we are the lone survivors of all those humans. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um, and we have the tools. I feel like open science um, in the paleoanthropology community has really progressed. Um, there's a lot more transparency of information, of finds. Um, and I think that's all for the good. Um, I think we will answer some questions, um, but we will probably have even more questions. So um, I think it's, it's good and it, it's fun all around. Um, Chris, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you again. Um, after two years, there was so much to talk about. Um, I hope the listeners really uh, got a lot out of this, a uh, lot to get out. Um, you know, you, you know this field, you know all these, all these remains, all these individuals. And I can tell you someone who's, you know, a bit familiar with it, but not incredibly familiar. It can be, it can be kind of hard. So um, I really appreciate you taking out the time uh, to talk to us and unpack it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Chris.